there is a tension in our faith. There are elements that seem opposed to each other. But at a closer look, we see the tension doesn't pull them apart. It holds them together. These sides are not in debate, but dialogue. Faith expands as we embrace the tension. Explore the paradox. a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 11 as we wrap up this series on Romans 9, 10, and 11, Truths Intention. Every single day, we face tension. We wake up in the morning and we have to decide, am I going to get up and get dressed or am I going to stay in bed? Tension. If we decide to get up, and we go to the kitchen, we have to decide, what am I going to eat? Am I going to eat sugar-coated cereal? Or am I going to eat oatmeal? Tension. And even this morning, uh, there was tension. People get up, they, they know they need to go to church, but they have to make a decision. Am I going to venture out and, and go to a place and worship with other people, or am I going to worship online? Tension. Now, some tension is meant to be resolved. For instance, if you have tension when you get up in the morning, whether you're going to stay in bed or whether you're going to get dressed and get going, if you've got school, if you've got work, you better get up, or that tension is going to hurt you. Or, if you want to be heart healthy, then don't eat that sugar-filled cereal. Eat the oatmeal. Don't give that sugar-filled cereal to your kids, especially if they're home. That's going to create more tension. <laughs> Some tension is, is easily resolved. The answers to, to resolving that tension are easy. But there are other questions that the answers to resolving the tension aren't as easy. Should I venture out and, and go to a place of worship? Or should I worship at home? The truth of the matter is, in a day and time like this, with the various things going on, there's no easy answer. There's not a right and wrong to that question. And so that tension, even though there may be the tension there, it's not easily resolved. And when we open up the Bible, we discover that there is a lot of tension like that that isn't easily resolved. For instance, take the, the nature of God. The Bible says that there is one God. And yet we are told that that one God reveals himself as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons simultaneously throughout eternity. How can that be? How can there be one God, three persons? Now, your mind may be able to figure that out, but mine can't. It creates tension. 
Or what about this idea about Jesus? The Bible teaches us that Jesus is fully man. He's 100% man. He experienced the pains that we experience. He experienced the desires that we experience. He knew what it was to get sleepy. He knew what it was to get hungry. He knew what it was to have pain. He was one of God, and yet the Bible was written by men. Flawed men. Sinful men. Imperfect men. And as we read these books, we discover their unique personalities. We see those things. And yet, it is the perfect word of God written by imperfect men. How can that be? It's tension. Or this issue that we've been talking about for the last three weeks. God is sovereign. God is completely in control. He is on his throne. He has no equal. He has no rival. God does whatever God wants to do and everything in human history is working toward his ultimate plan. He's on his throne. When it comes to salvation, the Bible tells us that God elects us. God calls us. God saves us. Salvation is of God. And yet the Bible also teaches that we have free will. The Bible says that when he created man, he created man in his image, in his likeness. And he gave that first man and that first woman the ability to choose. They could choose to obey or they could choose to rebel. He gave them freedom. When it comes to salvation, we are told that God is not willing that any perish, but that everyone come to repentance. We're told that God's desire is that all be saved and all come to a knowledge of the truth of God. We are told that, that Jesus died for the world, but we must accept him, receive him, trust him if we're going to be saved. Sovereignty of God, free will of man, there's this tension that goes on. And there are many of us today who we feel like it's our responsibility to resolve these tensions. But I've got news for you. There are some tensions in Scripture that you're never going to resolve. I want you to listen to how Paul closes up this section, Romans 9, 10, and 11, in verses 33 through 36. He says, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him. And exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. Now as Paul wraps up. These three chapters that are some of the most tension-filled chapters in Scripture, he ends up these chapters by telling us two truths. First of all, he tells us it is impossible to understand everything about God and His ways. You're never going to understand everything about God or God's ways. It's impossible. You're not, I'm not, so quit trying. 
to think that you can understand all the mysteries of God's nature, His ways, how He works throughout human history is the height of arrogance. Now that doesn't mean that we don't study. That doesn't mean that we don't try to understand. We do. We try to answer as many questions as we can. But we understand as we do with our puny sin-infected minds. We are never going to be able to understand all the mysteries about God and how He works. God's ways are so high above our ways that we will never be able to completely understand. Here's the second thing he tells us here. Life is not about you. Life is not about me. It's about God. Paul says here that everything is intended for God's glory. It's not intended for our happiness. It's not intended for our comfort. It's not about you. It's not about me. Everything is intended for God's glory. God created everything, including you, for His glory. Now, if you were to say that, that would be awful pride-filled, wouldn't it? But you need to understand that God is the only God. There is no other God. It's not like there is this plethora of gods out there and God is just the most powerful of all of these gods. No, God and God alone is God. God created everything else that is created. Without God, there is nothing else. Before there was anything, there was God. And so when God says, everything is for my glory, well, before there was anything, there was God. And so if there is anything, it is for His glory. Life isn't about you. Life isn't about me. It's about God. It's amazing how we become so self-obsessed to think that God created us so that He could serve us. Isn't that silly? I mean, we look at ourselves and we think it's all about us. That this almighty, all-powerful God created us so that He could be at our beck and call. It's not about you. It's not about your comfort. It's not about your happiness. It's not even about your health. It's about God's glory. And what I've come to understand is if I begin with the reality that I'm not going to understand everything about God nor the ways of God, and I understand that everything's not about me, it's about God and His glory, then everything else can take care of itself. Now, as Paul wraps up these three chapters in Romans chapter 11, he's talking, and let me remind you, about the Jews, and he's talking to the Jews. And he's been talking about the Jews and to the Jews in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And as you read these three chapters together, you discover that there's this kind of pattern going through human history. We are told that God chose the Jews for a purpose. We are told that the Jews rejected the Messiah, God's Son. But as you read chapter 11, you discover that there is coming a day when the Jewish people will again return to God. God's not through with the Jews. It's not like God has set the Jewish people aside and said, I'm through with you. 
I'm going to raise up a new people that is going to be my new Jerusalem, my new Jewish people. No, God says I still have a plan for the Jews and there is coming a day when the Jewish people will come back to me. We haven't seen that day yet. That day is somewhere in the future. I, I don't know when it's going to be. I don't know how that's going to play out in regard to the end times and all of that. But I do know that in the scripture we are promised that there is a day when the Jewish people will turn back to God and receive Jesus as the Messiah. We are told that. But as we look at this chapter, chapter 11, there are some truths that I think are important that go beyond that. They're truths that teach us something about the nature of God and also something about our responsibility to God. And those are the things that I want to share with you for the next few minutes. Five truths that I believe this passage teaches about the nature of God and, and about our responsibility to God. Here's truth number one that you need to understand this morning and that is God won't reject anyone who comes to him God will not reject anyone who comes to him listen to what it says in verses 1 and 2 I asked then has God rejected his own people the nation of Israel of course not I, I myself am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham and a, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin no God has not rejected his own people whom he chose from the very beginning. Now I've got to tell you, one of the worst things in the entire world is to be rejected, isn't it? To be, to be told that, that you're not wanted. I believe, with all my heart, one of the reasons middle school boys don't go over and ask those middle school girls to dance at the middle school dance is because they don't want to be rejected. I mean, there's nothing worse than being rejected. I mean, going up to this little girl that you think is cute, and you say, would you like to dance? And she says, well, I would, but not with you. <laughs> I mean, who wants to go through that? Who wants to be rejected? None of us want to be rejected, do we? Now, can you imagine being rejected by God, your creator, the one who made you? Uh, this particular word, that is found in verses 1 and 2 is only used six times in the New Testament. Twice here, four other times. It means to willfully, deliberately push away, to cast aside, to reject. But here's the thing that you need to understand. This word is never used to describe God and how he operates towards us. It is used to describe how we respond to God you see the scriptures tell us that never God never willfully deliberately cast us aside and rejects us and yet we do that to God John said this in his gospel John said he came to his own Jesus he came to his own and his own received him not they rejected him the Apostle Paul said that the Word of God first went to the Jews, but when the Jews rejected it, it then went out to the Gentiles. Paul said in Romans chapter 2, when people rejected the truth, the wrath of God came upon them. 
You need to understand something this morning. The Bible never says anywhere that God rejects us. But over and over again, we are told that we reject God. The word that is used in verse 2 and verse 1, where Paul answers that question, has God rejected his own people? And it says, of course not. By no means, God forbid, depending on what translation you have, it is the strongest Greek word that Paul could use here. What Paul is saying is there is no way, absolutely no way, that God would reject his people. Now don't forget, these were the people that rejected God. These were the people that rejected Jesus. These were the people that took Jesus to Pilate. These were the people that mocked him. These were the people that said crucify him. These were the people that were there shouting at him, making fun of him when he was nailed to the cross. And yet Paul says God would never reject those people. The people that turned their back on God God said that he would never turn their back on him. Or God would never turn their back on them. And then he uses himself as an example. He says, I'm a Jew. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And yet God hasn't rejected me. Remember Paul? Paul was the one who was at the stoning of Stephen. Paul was the one who made it his life's mission to to stamp out the name of Jesus, to remove the name of Jesus from the face of the earth. And yet Paul said, God didn't reject me in spite of all the things that I did. Instead, he sought after me. He ran after me. He pursued me. And if God did that for Paul, I want you to know that he will do the same thing for you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. God will never reject you. You can reject him. You can hear his word, be moved by his spirit, and refuse to turn to him. But he will never walk away from you. He will always be there with open arms saying, I love you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, there are some of you here and there are some of you who are watching, you think that you have done things that are so bad that God could never accept you, that God has already turned his back on you, and yet this tells us that if he did not reject the ones who nailed him to the cross, then he's not going to reject you. God will not reject anyone.